is not here. I don't know where he is. He could be anywhere in the country. <laughs> and uh, Pastor Rick is up in Idaho with, I think, Charlie Kirk. And so you got me tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and tonight we're in some just uh, an amazing, one of, some of my favorite parts of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians. And so if you'll stand, we're going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're going to read the first eight verses. It says, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God our Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake." And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith, has gone, your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. And Lord... We're grateful and thankful for this opportunity that we have to be here this evening. I love to be in your house, and I love to be here with our brothers and sisters who love you, who are seeking you, who are trying to find answers for how to live in the world that we live in today, and thank you that we get to do this together, Lord. And Lord, as we open your word, I pray that you'll bless it. I do want to pray especially for those who've come in, in this evening and Lord, they're of heavy heart, maybe they're anxious, maybe they're fearful, maybe they don't, they don't know you at all, Lord. Maybe they're seeking you, maybe they're looking for an answer. I, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you administer in the way that you alone know how, I pray that you administer to their hearts. So bless our time in your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it certainly is an honor um, to be with you. And I know that, uh, just as Christina was sharing in, the, in what's going on in the youth, and she was just mentioning some of the things, you know, our minds often turn, as Christians, to where we are in God's eternal scheme of things. I was, maybe you listened to it too, but I listened to a video podcast um, in which Jan Markle uh, founder of Olive Tree Ministries, was opening a conference focused on prophecy and current events along with uh, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Amir Safari, Barry Stagner, and some others. But she opened this particular conference session by saying, Church, we are living in unprecedented times, in times of delusion, in times of incompetence, in times of treason. And the whole conference certainly was a lot of good wisdom from seasoned teachers and from the Word of God, which we would do well 
to listen to and certainly not dismiss. But spend time at a prophecy conference and no doubt you come away thinking that we must be nearing the end. But you know, I remember being at the pastor's conference. I was a young minister. It was 2001, 9-11 happened. Pastor Chuck was there. And I remember him sharing. And I remember we left the conference early, but we were all pretty convinced that Jesus' return was around the corner. And you know what? Churches were full. I don't, you probably remember that. I just remember our church. All of a sudden got full for a few weeks. That was in 2001. And here we are 20 years later. And again, there's much talk like that. But you know, I think we have to have our head in the sand or we're totally naive if we don't see what's happening in the world today. Certainly there is an amazing convergence of events that that the Bible prophetically speaks about. And it's happening now, in in the days that we live, that portends to Christ's return. And truly, his his return does seem around the corner. That's always in our mind. And these are the times that we live in. And you know, coming to this church, Pastor Rob, on the one hand, wants us to be preaches, we need to be ready, but at the same time, We can't abandon our duty in the world that we live in right now. And so the question is, how do we live in that balance of living as if we expect Christ to return today, but at the same time planning as if we will live our entire life here on earth and leaving it a better place? How can and should the church respond to what is becoming a more and more blatant and obvious rebellion against God, against his morals, against his values? How does the believer cope in the face of blatant tyranny, which is certainly what's happening today? You know, the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians speak to this, as we will see. They were a church that was born into adversity, They dealt with adversity. And the imminent return of Christ was something that was near and dear. It was was on their mind. But I would kind of say in, in opening first that we need to be prepared. And we need to be looking forward to the imminent return of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 and 28 says, And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Second Timothy chapter four, verses six through eight, Paul's writing to Timothy, He's nearing the end of his life, and he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept 
the faith. And finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. Who have loved his appearing. There's a sense that as Christians, we need to be looking forward to this event. You know, I've learned over the course of my 30 years of marriage that my wife is not so big on surprises. I've tried in the past uh, to plan certain things to surprise her, including my engagement, which didn't work very well. Um, It's worked a few times, but it's fallen flat many times, usually because of something I forgot to think about like the babysitter that was supposed to take care of our kids for the five days that we would be gone. But, <laughs> but here's, here's what I think. I think that when I bring her into the planning, not only do we enjoy the much better planned event, but we enjoy the anticipation of the event. You think about the trip. You think about where you're going to how you will get there, what you will see, the things you will enjoy. And the whole time, you're thinking, I can't wait to go. You know, so many Christians are either ignorant or apathetic about the return of Christ. Or they dread it because they think that it won't happen in their own lifetime. Or they're too busy to think about it. Or they're enjoying this life so much and they somehow think that eternity in heaven is going to be drudgery. Brothers and sisters, we can't get excited about something we don't know about or we don't think about. The Bible says where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. Where do our affections lie? You know, Jesus, speaking of the end times, gives us the warning of Lot's life. Remember Lot's life. And you know the story. She was leaving Sodom being destroyed, leaving being saved by the hand of God, but her affection for the city, her her affection for her former life was so much that she turned back and she was turned into a pillar of salt, the Bible says. 1 John chapter 1, sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, a love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Where do our affections lie? And as, as Paul exhorts us to be those who eagerly await, I would just encourage us to examine ourselves. Where do our affections lie? Are we like Abraham, pilgrims, anticipating a future home? Second, I think we need to stay close to fellowship with believers in the word of God. Psalm 102 verse 20 says, he sent his forth, sorry, he sent forth his word and he healed them. He rescued them from the pit. And 1 Timothy 3.14 says, these things I write to you 
though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. We can't forget, and I know that I'm speaking largely as the choir, but a daily dose of the word of God truly brings encouragement, it brings the healing, it brings the direction, it brings the rebuke that we need. And in the context of the church, we do find truth. We do find that recalibration of our moral compass. And you know what? I'm thrilled to be a part of a church that is open, that is a place where people can come and find not only solace, not only encouragement, but they can find answers to the difficult questions that we're faced with in the life that we live. And third, speaking of God's word, I want us to be encouraged by the example of the Thessalonian church. You know, when I look at, when I, when I describe the Thessalonian church, I, ha- I would just describe it as being the real thing. They were an effective church. And I, effective somehow sounds modern, corporate, whatever, but it's true. They were, they were a church that was being a church. They were doing what a church should do. Using Paul's own words in, in that passage, they were a church in which the word of God was sounding forth in every place. And he, and he lists um, not only the city, but the region. Their faith was known. They were a church that the word of God was sounding forth from. They were a church which was born and enduring tribulation. They were looking forward to the imminent return of Christ. But nonetheless, even as they were in the midst of tribulation, even as they were looking forward to the return of Christ, they were a church that was having an amazing impact on the community and the culture, on the region that they were in. They didn't have their heads in the sand. They were not a social club. They were not, as some would say, so heavenly-minded that they were of no earthly good. In fact, they were so heavenly-minded, they were much earthly good. They were the real thing. They were a church being a church. And you know, as I was asked to prepare, and I was, at, I was just going through the anchor, this is the burden that the Lord put on my heart through this passage that we would be a church that thrives, that is effective, that is sounding forth, that is making the name of Jesus known, that is doing what makes Jesus happy. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, and he's on the road, and he sees Zacchaeus up in a tree, calls him down, says, we're going to your house. And he says, today, Salvation has come to this house. Salvation of Zacchaeus brought joy to Jesus' heart. That we would be a church that is bringing joy to Jesus' heart as we are bringing the gospel to our community. That we would be encouraged to be the real thing, even as the Thessalonian was. In however many days the Lord leaves us on this earth to live. So, a few words of introduction for the Thessalonian church. The book of Thessalonians is perhaps the earliest of Paul's epistles. Uh, 
It was written, and I think there's a map. Yeah, there's a map back there. So that's Paul's second missionary journey. So it was written when Paul was on his second missionary journey. It was written from Athens. And he would send Timothy back to um, Thessalonica to see how the church was doing. And he brought back a report from Thessalonica about how they were doing. And so Paul would write this letter um, to encourage them in the midst of their tribulations. Remember that Paul had planted the Thessalonian church on his second missionary journey. If you're looking at the map, um, that whole line is, is kind of the, the journey that he went on. Remember that he was going up through Asia. He gets detoured over into Philippi. And we know the record of him starting the church in Philippi. It started with a woman by the shore of the river, Lydia, and it grew. Um, because of something Paul did, he cast a demon out of a, a demon-possessed woman. He was thrown in jail. Um, it caused a great commotion. They were, they, were, they were thrown in jail. You know, he's singing psalms in the night. Um, a miracle happens. The doors open. The jailer is about to kill himself because he thinks all the, the prisoners have gone. Paul calls out and says, don't kill yourself. We're still here. And the jailer is so touched that he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so the rest of the, the jailer t took him home, washed him and fed him. And um, Paul and Silas were released. The church is started. But they would go from Philippi. They would go on to Amphipolis and then on to Apollonia, as you can see there. And then they would come to Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. And it says in Acts 17 verse 1 that they went to Thessalonica for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the scriptures, proclaiming the gospel. And it says there in Acts 17 that some of them were persuaded, along with God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women, and the message was heard. But as is typical in Paul's journey, wherever Paul went, opposition came, and it came quickly. And they formed a mob, and they came to one of the new believers' homes. His name was Jason, searching for Paul. They didn't find Paul, but they dragged Jason into the city square, and they began to beat him. And they said, these men have upset the world and have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Eventually, it calmed down, but Paul and Silas were sent away, and they would head on to Berea, and then on down to Athens. But Paul was very anxious. He shares this later on in Thessalonians in chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I could endure it no longer. I also sent Timothy to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain. Paul, Paul's heart. Was, was for this new church. And so he sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to see how they were doing. Well, we know that Timothy would return with a good report. And that is what spurred Paul to write this letter. And so in verses 1 and 2, we see the thankfulness of Paul. He says, To the church of the Thessalonians, 
In God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul, in just these first two verses, just expresses gratitude. He expresses thankfulness. And I'm sure that hearing this good news from this church that he was so worried about made him thankful, made, made him well up with gratitude. Proverbs chapter 25 says, As cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And this was good news. You know, Paul, remember, is now in um, Corinth, on, in Athens. He's been reunited with Silas and Timothy. And Timothy's just returned from Thessalonica, having reported the condition of the church. And Paul is thankful for the report that he receives. But one thing that's typical is that Paul often opens his letters with expressions of gratitude, expressions of thankfulness. And you know what? That, that's an expression of faith. Because in being thankful, we're taking our eyes off ourself, we're taking our mind off of ourself and our problems, and we're putting it on others. We're called as Christians, to be thankful. Psalm 104 verse, 100 verse 4 tells us to be thankful as we come into the house of God. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful and bless his name. Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 associates thankfulness with peace in our heart. Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. You know, Romans chapter one warns us that an unthankful heart is a sign of rebellion from chapter one of Romans because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful. Neither were they thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. You know, Paul was able to be thankful in spite of the hard situations that he was in. In fact, many of the, the, the greatest phrases, the most memorable phrases that Paul writes, were when he was in the hardest places. He had a difficult life. In following Jesus. Nonetheless, we never find Paul complaining. He was thankful. You know, I've come to know that thankfulness is probably the greatest antidote to anxiety. Thankfulness is, is probably the, the best way to overcome anxiety. And this is what Paul says in Philippians 4. He says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you. I know it's not, I, I'm not saying I'm good at this myself, but I know it helps me. When I'm facing a problem, when I'm facing a challenge, instead of complaining about it, thank God for it. Because somehow God can use that challenge in your life by faith to, to bring about a good outcome. So instead of complaining, let's seek to be thankful. But why is Paul thankful? Well, we see here that he sees 
He's thankful because he sees a genuineness. He sees a genuine salvation in the Thessalonian church. He says, making mention of you in our prayers, verse 2, verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Remembering without ceasing, I want you to look at these three phrases, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope, knowing, beloved brethren, your election of God. Paul here is thankful because he sees that their election was sure. They were saved. The initial faith that they professed when Paul was there in the midst of that tribulation had shown itself to be genuine salvation. But how was Paul so sure of their salvation? And in these verses, verses 3 and 4, we see three evidences that were proof of their salvation. The first one is when he says, remembering your work of faith. Remembering your work of faith. They had faith that worked. The the Thessalonians had faith that worked. You know, it's interesting that Paul puts these two words side by side, faith and works. He puts these two words side by side in a way that answers very well the controversy that exists between faith and works as they relate to our salvation. We, we know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then we have James 2, 17. Even so, faith without works is dead. You know, when you think about it, there is a faith that does not work. You could say that's counterfeit faith. You could say it's lazy faith. It's not genuine. It doesn't lead to salvation. It will not get us to heaven. What do I mean by a lazy faith? Well, we know it's a faith of words only. We profess Christ. We profess a love for God, but has not made an impact on our life. This is shown in in the verses in James, which we're probably very familiar with. What does it profit, my brothers, though a man say he has faith and not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of food, and one of you says unto him, Depart in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving him those things which are needful, what does it profit? Lazy faith, as I'm calling it, is a costume. We put it on. It makes us look like a Christian. It makes us look like Christ followers. We talk and act like Christians in the right circumstances, but it has not changed us. It has not changed the way we behave. It has not changed the decisions that we make. It has not changed our goals or aspirations. Like a gardener hired to prune and tend and beautify a garden. But instead of doing the work of digging and pruning and tending, all he does is sit under the shade and rests. This kind of faith is useless. It's useless for ourselves. It's useless for others. It does not lead to eternal life because it's not the real thing. It's a counterfeit faith. And so while there is a counterfeit faith, there's also a faith that works. And this is what Paul is speaking of here. 
And this is genuine faith. It's a faith that leads to salvation. It's a faith spoken of by James. You see, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is a faith that has at first grabbed our heart. It transforms our mind. It challenges our thinking. It changes our attitudes. It changes our motives. It, it changes our life. It's a working faith, and it's the faith that we see in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. You know, Hebrews chapter 12 begins by saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses of faith, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set him before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of his Father in heaven. But all Hebrews 11 is there for us to understand what faith looks like in every situation in life. And we can look at Abraham. We can look at Moses. We can look at David. You know, if you're following in the anchor, we're in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 6, we read the story of Daniel in the government of Darius. And it says of Daniel, it says he was of excellent spirit. He was faithful. There was no error or fault found in him. And Darius's men were jealous and they were looking for a way to bring him down. And so they conspired and they made a law and they somehow got King Darius to sign it that says if, if men, if a man prays to anyone other than Darius for the next 30 days, he will be cast into the den of lions. Well, what did Daniel do? Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home and in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God, as was his custom. You see, Daniel wasn't worried about what men would do to him. Daniel knew he had faith that his God would take care of him. As you're thinking about that turn of words, does your faith work? Has your faith in Jesus changed the way you think, the way you talk, the way you walk? Has it purified your mind? Has it affected your vocation, your goals, your decisions? Paul here is thankful because he sees the genuineness of their salvation seen in their work of faith. They had a faith that worked. He goes on in that passage and he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love. Your labor, their labor of love. They had a love that labored. Again, it's interesting how Paul relates two words here that as Christians, we can become confused in. Laboring does not necessarily mean we are loving. But nonetheless, genuine love 
is a love that labors. What do I mean? Well, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the famous love chapter. And I'm going to read the first four verses. Though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. I remember being a missionary, growing up on the mission field, being a missionary. This is a verse that truly every time I read it was a verse that made me stop, made me ponder, made me ask myself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Because you see, we can be caught up in a life in which we have fooled ourselves into thinking that, our, that what we're doing is service to God. But the scripture makes it clear because it's not motivated out of genuine love, it's vanity. It's in vain. How sobering is that? God is love. We know that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Think about that. God's love for us caused him to labor on our behalf. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent, that he gave his son. God is love. And the hallmark of a Christian, because God is in us, is love. Jesus said to his disciples, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. And elsewhere, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So we see here that our love for God should cause us to do two things. It should cause us to obey. It should cause us to desire to please God by keeping his commandments. And that's labor. And it should also cause us to love and serve our fellow man. Again, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean, sorry, chapter 13, verse 4. Listen to this description of what love is. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Does your love labor? 
Genuine salvation. Paul is thankful because he sees this genuine salvation in their faith that worked, in their love that labored. The last thing he points out here in 1 Thessalonians, he says, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God. Remembering without ceasing the patience of hope. They had a hope that was patient. They had a hope that was patient. You know, we referenced Hebrews 11 earlier. And Hebrews 11 starts by saying, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And when you go through that chapter, again, it's there. It's a cloud of witnesses to show us what faith looks like in every circumstance of life. But in almost every case where faith is shown, there's a lot of waiting. Faith goes along with waiting. I want you to think of Noah, and I'm teaching a class out at a Bible college, and I'm actually teaching through the book of Genesis, but just thinking about what it was like for Noah. You know, he, he lived in a perverse generation. It had to be more perverse than the generation that we live in, because we know that he was a preacher of righteousness, the Bible says. He was a preacher of righteousness for all the years that he was building the ark. And we suspect that was 120 years, and no one but his family went on the ark with him. No one in the whole world was righteous. But nonetheless, he was probably about 480 years old when God gave him the command to start building the ark. And for the next 120 years, he was obedient to not only preach, but obedient to build that ark. 120 years. 120 years ago, it was 1900, 40 years after the Civil War, 15 years before World War I. That's a long time ago. Imagine being obedient to a call that God has put in your life for 120 years. Patience. Abraham waited for the promise of the son for more than 25 years. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years before he got the call of God upon his life. David waited 17 years between the time that God put the promise of being the king to actually being the king. The life of faith involves a lot of waiting. And I say that to encourage you. I know it encourages me. Because sometimes we become impatient. We want things to happen immediately. We want immediate results. And we're trained by our society because our society demands that. We're having to wait a little more now for things that we're used to get very quickly. But, and that's probably good for us. But, but it should encourage us in our labor for the Lord to realize that, you know what, sometimes things take time. Maybe you're praying for a loved one. Maybe you're praying for a sickness that you've been dealing with for a long time. Maybe you're praying for an unsaved relative. Maybe there's some unresolved issue that you wish God would step in and resolve now. Paul says, I remember without ceasing your patience of hope. The Thessalonians had a, had a hope 
that was patient. And that is also a mark of genuine salvation, that we are patient in our hope. We persevere. Is our hope patient? Is your hope patient? That was the genuine salvation that Paul was thankful for. But that didn't just come about. He goes on, we see that that genuine salvation came from a gospel. And again, for lack of a better word, I'm using an effective gospel. The genuine salvation came from an effective gospel. And, and I want to put this up there because it kind of fleshes out what sharing the gospel looks like, what makes sharing the gospel effective. And so as we're thinking about sharing the gospel, what does that mean? Well, look at what it meant here. Look at what that genuine salvation in the Thessalonian church came about as a result of. He says there, for our gospel, we know that's good news, did not come to you in word only, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you. First of all, that gospel, that effective gospel, came about in word. And Paul says, not in word only, but it did come about in word. You know, those of you who are from Calvary Chapel, historically, know the emphasis that we put on the word of God. Typically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, book by book. Why? Because the word is our guide. It's our compass. And knowing it ensures that we're going in the right direction. If you ask my wife, she always gets on my case because I I actually like to drive without knowing where I'm going. (laughs) Why don't you use a a map? She says it, it, I like the thrill uh, of getting lost, which is kind of fun, being lost. But when we're speaking in spiritual terms, you know, there's a whole lot of people that have their Thomas guide shut. That's a dated term. They have their Google Maps shut. <laughs> they're not looking at their map. It's closed. And they're kind of winging it, hoping that they end up in the right place. But we know that the end of that isn't a good place. God's word is a map. It tells us how to live in this life. It tells us how to, to get into eternal life. The word of God is sacred. The Bible says that God holds his word even above his own name. Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 8 says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave us sense and helped them to understand the reading. Verse 12, And all the people went their way because they understood the words that were declared to them. God's word helps us, helps us to understand how he wants us to live. We can't know what God wants us to do or how he wants to live apart from his word. Psalm 119, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. God's word helps us to avoid sin. Isaiah 52, it shall go forth 
and not return void without accomplishing that which God intended it to accomplish. God's word is powerful in accomplishing God's word, in, God, in accomplishing God's will. First Thessalonians 2.13, Paul would later write in this very book, for this reason, we thank God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which you heard, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but in truth, the word of God, which effectively works. Other translations say transforms you who believe. The word of God, which effectively transforms we who believe. God's word is transformative. Romans tells us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's God's word that does that amazing and miraculous work to transform us into men and women who are more like Christ. So the the gospel came first of all in word. But Paul says, not in word only. He says in that second verse, but also in power. Now what is the power that Paul is speaking of here? Certainly, he speaks of the empowerment that comes as we're energized and controlled by the Holy Spirit in our life. But I'll speak to that in the next point. I think this also speaks to the power that comes as that message which we hear has first run its course in our own life, the power of a testimony. You know, I would say that there are several levels of knowledge. If I've studied something, I can regurgitate it. And at this point, it's information in my mind, but it has really not made it into my heart. And it really won't affect my life. I would say that's the most superficial level of knowledge. But then there's a deeper level. We've studied something. We've meditated on it. We've chewed on it. And it's made an impact. It's it's affected our heart. You know, I remember when I was young in ministry and I was taking a course in public speaking because I was absolutely petrified of standing in front of people and speaking. And I, make, I remember my teacher, who was a great teacher, but I, I very specifically remember him saying something that I won't forget. And he said, Craig, you have to speak from your heart because what's, what's in your heart is much more powerful My pastor, Pastor Don McClure, also saw that I needed help with public speaking. (laughs) But he said something very similar when I began teaching. He said, because, you know, as a pastor, you're always worried uh, you're going to get up there and you're going to not know what to say. What do I have to say? What do I have to say that other people will want to hear? And he said something that was so profound, I've, I've remembered it to this day. He said, If it's food for you, it'll be food for others. If what I've read has nourished me, when I share it with other people, it will be nourishment for them as well. And that was very freeing for me because then I stopped worrying about what I was saying. As long as I was speaking what had impacted me, what I felt like the Lord had shown me, I know that God will use it to to help someone else as well. But then there's a third level of knowledge. That which we know, that which has impacted our heart, and that which we have lived, it has become a testimony. You know, I could stand up here and I could talk to you about the dangers of drugs. 
or of alcohol. And I would only be speaking, praise the Lord, from a very tertiary level. Because I've never, I was blessed with a wonderful family and I, and I, was, I never was involved in that. But me speaking would probably have very little effect on those of you who might be struggling with that issue. You'd be saying, ah, he doesn't understand. But if you've heard someone who has been freed, who has that testimony of being involved in drugs or alcohol or some other lifestyle, and, and they've experienced the horrors of it, but they've been set free by the power of the word of God, all of a sudden you sit up and you listen because that person that's talking has that deeper knowledge. It's his testimony. You know, my dad died when I was 16. He was on the mission field. So I can very well relate to people who've lost loved ones, who've lost parents, who've lost sons. And God uses those testimonies, that deeper level of knowledge, for his purposes. And so Paul says, not only has the gospel come in word only, but in, in power. And I believe when he says in power, it's in the testimony of Paul's life. And we know that, that tes- the testimony that Paul had. But he goes on and he says um, there, not only in power, he says it comes in the Holy Spirit. The effective gospel is that which comes not only in word, as important as that is, not only in the power of a sermon given with conviction, not only in the power of a, a testimony lived, but in the, in the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You know, Acts, we're called into the Great Commission, all of us. We're called to be witnesses. And that, wit- that word witness is the word from which we get the word martis or martyr. And so ultimately, that ability to be a, an effective witness for Christ and even to the point of being willing to die for Christ is not something that we can conjure up on our own. It only comes when the Holy Spirit has empowered us. And what does that look like? Well, if you go to Acts 2, we see the believers. In Acts chapter 4, they were coming under persecution. It says when they prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke with boldness. Courage. Boldness. Pastor Rob talks about being dead men walking. We have this assurance of where we're going. We know who we're serving. We're not worried about what happens to us. We have boldness. That boldness comes from the confidence that we have in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit in us. You know, my grandfather was fond of saying, and I heard him quoted, the word without the spirit is dead. The spirit without the word is dangerous. The word with the spirit is dynamite. And you could take those phrases and you could argue about them, but I think you get the gist of it all. We can go to a church. I remember going to Westminster Cathedral, hearing the word of God preached in these great walls, beautiful building, 
but, and they were reading the word of God, which in and of itself was powerful, but there was no life. There was no spirit in that preaching. There was no spirit in that building. It was dead. So he says the word comes in the power. It comes in the spirit. It comes in assurance. Look at what he says there. He says, but also in power and in the spirit and in much assurance. Along with the gospel came assurance of of its veracity. At the church at Pentecost, there were tongues of fire. They They were speaking in tongues. They were performing miracles. And just as there were assurances in the New Testament as they shared the gospel, there will be assurances that come as we share the gospel. What will these look like? I'm not discounting that those very things could happen. But those assurances will be peace. We will have peace. Philippians 4, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which passes understanding. God always promises peace. There will be joy. There will be provision. God will speak to you, and he will speak to you in in various ways. Hebrews tells us that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to the fathers by the prophets in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. He may speak to you in a dream or a vision. He may speak to you through scripture or a sermon or a message or the word of another person. He may speak to you in a still, small, quiet voice. He may intervene in your life. In fact, Corinthians tells us that the Holy Spirit gives us giftings. And these are assurances of our of the gospel. And those giftings can be miraculous. So the gospel, Paul says, came not only in word, not only in power, not only in the spirit, but it came with assurances and it came lastly in example. And he says there, um, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. As you know what kind of men we were. Paul realized that the example of his life was also part of the gospel he was sharing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, just later on, Paul says, You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved among you who believe. As you know, we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. Our example the way we live our life, is such an important aspect of the gospel that we share. The example with with which we carry the message is as important as the message itself. Don't let your actions cancel your message. Don't let your actions cancel your message. We're closing in a few minutes, and I just want to kind of recap. We've spoken of genuine salvation. Genuine salvation shows itself in a faith that works. It shows itself in a love that labors. It shows itself in a hope that is patient. And that salvation came about in the Thessalonian church as a result of an effective gospel. And that effective gospel came in word, the scriptures, 
It came in power of the testimony of Paul. It came in the power of the Holy Spirit. It came with assurances. And it came by the example of Paul's life. But what did all that result in? And this is where I want to close tonight. And this is from verses 6 through 8. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place your faith towards God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. So going back, remember how the church started. Paul and Silas coming in, preaching. There's chaos. Jason is dragged into town. Paul and and Silas and Timothy are asked to leave. And Paul's worried. He's worried about what's happened. But somehow, that gospel, that that time that he spent, those three Sabbaths and the weeks in between, he spent because it came, it was an effective gospel, because it came in word, in power, in the spirit, it came with assurance and by his example. It led to a church. It resulted in a real church, an effective church. A church that was, I love verse eight, For from you the word has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. From from that little church, the gospel was resonating. It was going out. And this brings us back to what I opened with as we're thinking about the times that we live in. We don't want to be those people that are so heavenly minded that we've abdicated our role in the here and now. On the other hand, we don't want to be those people that has negated the, the idea that Christ is eminently returning. But we want to be that effective church. We want to be those men and women. We want to be that church that the word sounds forth from. You know, we live in a sick and perverse generation, as did Noah, as did the Thessalonians. But as Pastor Amir Safari says, he says the gospel is the most potent pill for cure on planet Earth. The gospel is the most potent pill for cure on planet Earth. The Bible says, he who wins souls is wise. And we're here to win souls. Tell someone. Tell someone about Jesus. Tell someone about the good news that he is offering. The good news that though we were dead in our trespass and sin, though we were destined for eternity in hell, that God was unwilling that any should perish, but has made a way. And he made a way by sending his son to take the punishment for the sin that we have committed. 
to take that punishment upon himself. To put or to count the righteousness of his son, Jesus, on our account. He didn't lower the bar in order to get us into heaven. He raised us up to his bar by covering us and and washing us in the blood of Jesus. That's the good news. That's what we have to share. That's what this church was doing. They were sounding forth the word, so much so that they had need to say nothing. And my prayer for us in this church, and I'm thrilled that more and more people come week by week, and that they are encouraged, that they do hear the truth. But my prayer is that they will see, that we all would see that our greatest need is Jesus. Amen? Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Thessalonian church. Your word is truly inspired, Lord, how the story of how a church came into being and the testimony and the, the narrative that comes from that speaks so much truth to us today, nearly 2,000 years later. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by it. We would be encouraged to be that real church, the real thing, the genuine church, the church from which your word is sounding forth. Lord, as we look into our own lives, as we look at our own faith, as we look at our own love, as we look at our hope, I pray that you would be drawing us deeper and deeper into our walk with you. Lord, I pray that our affections would be heavenly affections. I pray that we would, as that hymn says, that we'd be turning our eyes upon you, Jesus. That we'd be looking into your wonderful face. And that truly the things of this earth would be growing dim in the light of your glory and your grace. Lord, bless us this evening. Continue to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Bless the ministry of tomorrow. Bless Pastor Rob as he shares with us. Use the message to reach many, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.